Dark Things Podcast. This is Season 3, Episode 2. Today we're talking about the Salem Witch Trials. And I have a question for you. I want you to imagine being able to execute someone at the point of a finger. Kings and queens can do that, right? Now imagine having to put on a show, kind of like a jester would. But your show and antics could put someone to death if you performed well enough. The Witch Trials of Salem were just that. A good performance, but one that would probably have the lowest Rotten Tomato rating. Have you ever seen Sharknado? <laughs> I haven't. No? Okay. Luckily enough. I don't know the Rotten Tomatoes score, but it's probably pretty close to zero. Do you think so? Uh, probably not zero, because... Okay, here's the thing about Rotten Tomatoes. Like, usually they give shit movies a really good rating. Yeah, yeah. And they give, like, really bad movies... Or, I mean, really good movies <laughs> a really bad rating. That is true. On Rotten Tomatoes. That's, That's, I'm curious, though. We gotta pull up the shark, Sharknado rating. Sharknado? Okay, yeah, I'll yeah. get it pulled up here. You can continue <laughs> on. Yeah, so... While Hunter's pulling this up, I'm just going to give a brief kind of introduction to how we're going to go about this show and uh, episode in particular. So with Salem Witch Trials, like there's a lot to cover, and we did source Wikipedia for the most part. And trust me, I went through at least nine different websites, you know, history.org, a couple like actual Salem um, websites and a documentary website with archived files on it. And Wikipedia actually had the best presentation of that information um which i never thought i'd say but they did a really good job of sourcing all that information um and putting it in a chronological order which is how we're going to try to tackle this so we're going to go through the background information first on basically why this all happened and then we're going to go through the timeline and the actual trials which is where it gets a little bit freaky so we're going to try to keep this um as brief as possible as we go through the information we need to, but we're going to talk about it along the way as well. All right, so you want to know the Sharknado ratings? Oh, uh, yeah, let's hear it. Okay, Sharknado, which came out in 2013, got a 78% on no. Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, yeah. my God, you're not joking, dude. <laughs> no, I'm serious. <laughs> Sharknado 2, the second one is what it's called. It got a 61%, so a little less. Uh, Sharknado, The Fourth Awakens. <laughs> <laughs> Are you kidding me? That one got a 14%, so that one must have been pretty bad. Okay. And there's a fifth one, uh, Sharknado 5, Global Swarming. <laughs> Dude, I'm going to watch all these. They sound great. You better. <laughs> all right. Um, so, yeah, let's hop into this. Hundred. Uh, what we're going to do is talk about the background information. We'll just take a little bit um, each. So if you want to start the background, we'll just go through this real quick on what's important for the listeners to know. Yeah, so which trials have started in Europe in around the 16th century? 1612 was when England had its most famous witch trials, including the trial of the Pendle Witches, um, which, like I said, started in 1612. We're going to be focusing mainly on the Salem witch trials, which was in Salem, Massachusetts. Uh, so when the European witch craze started to fizzle out by the mid-17th century, they continued on just the fringes of Europe, and they were really starting to get traction in the American colonies. There were events in 1692 and 1693 in Salem, and a brief outburst of a hysteria in the New World regarding witches. While the practice was already wanting, while the practice was already waning in most of Europe, in 1668, in against modern 
Sadducism, Joseph Glanville claimed he could prove the existence of witches and ghosts of the supernatural realm. Glanville wrote about the denial of the bodily resurrection and the supernatural spirit. In his treatise, Glanville claimed that ingenious men should believe in witches and apparitions if they doubted the reality of spirits, not only denied demons but also Almighty God. Glanville wanted to prove that the natural could not be denied. Those who did deny apparitions were considered heretics, for it disproved their beliefs in angels. Works by men such as Glanville and Cotton Mather tried to prove that demons were alive. Okay, so I want to ask you a question, because yeah, I think that's pretty, that's pretty cool. Um, so, if you believe in God, and if you believe in angels, does that mean that you should and have to believe in the devil and, like, demons? I don't know, dude. I mean, according to this, yeah. But I think that's a little bit crazy, you know, because it's like, I feel like religions are trying so hard to get you closer to this, like, spiritual, you know, power. But then, on the opposite hand, it's like, not only are we trying to get you closer to a spiritual power, but we're also going to tell you that there's another spiritual power out there that's trying to get you, and they're very real too, you know? For sure. Like, it's kind of like, uh, whenever there's good, there's always evil. Like, there's always going to be an opposite to something. Right. But, I mean, how do you feel about that? Because it's like, imagine hearing that in a sermon, because, I mean, we were both raised Mormon, and I know that, like, they briefly talked about it. They're always like, be careful what you're doing, because, you know, the devil's always going to, like, try to catch you. But it was never, like, an emphasis. It was just, yeah. like, a warning, you know? Um, well, I mean, it's, it's all part of the pyramid scheme, <laughs> the <laughs> devil and everything. <laughs> I think that like, just, I don't know. I don't really want to talk too much in depth about what I feel about it, but like, I think that if you believe in a higher power of good, like God and angels and stuff, I read this like crazy article that says like 40, 35, 40% of the U S population believes in angels. Really? That's a ton. <laughs> That's literally half. <laughs> No way. I don't know, man. I'm just like, you've got to be kidding me. Dude, all these people in California, dude, there's like, that's half our population. They don't believe in that, dude. Yeah. So I thought that was pretty crazy. Like, oh my. It's no wonder why we have so many anti-mask people here. Dude, straight They're, they're all believing in angels. <laughs> They'll save us. They're covering my mouth oh, for me. Oh, jeez. So, um, okay, yeah, that's just what, that's just the thought that came to me. No, that's a good one to point out because, yeah, it, it adds into this whole story. It gets crazy. So. With that, we got some accusations. Uh, the trials were started after people had been accused of witchcraft, primarily by teenage girls such as Elizabeth Hubbard, who was 17, as well as some who were younger. Dorothy Good was four or five years old when she was accused of witchcraft. Imagine that, dude. Four or five years old, and someone accuses you of being a witch, and you're basically put to death at that point. You're four or five, dude. She was probably, like, having, like, some baby talk. Yeah. <laughs> They're like... <laughs> This girl is summoning the devil. <laughs> she needs to stop. Yeah. yeah, she probably had one of those like delayed, you know, um, growths, you know, where like not talking like bodily or physical growths, but like, you know, mentally and speech, you know, impairments kind of thing where she probably did have some kind of impediment and people were like, oh, damn, <laughs> she's Absolutely. a witch. Get her. And we'll talk about things like why people would accuse people of witchcraft because there were some ulterior motives, definitely, when yeah. accusing someone of witchcraft. Like, uh, you know, if you see this 17-year-old girl and you're this creepy priest and you're like, ooh, she's kind of hot, but, like, you know, you can't have her because she's 17. And right. This priest who can't get married or anything. So your option is going to be like, well, I'm just going to accuse her of witchcraft, you know? Because yeah. I can't have her, so nobody can. Dude, like, I mean, you're definitely right because that shit happened all the time. I mean, this has been a long time running with every religion possible is the shit where you're going after younger 
boys and girls. So, or you could even say like, oh, this woman is way too promiscuous. This woman is way too good looking. She has to be of the devil. Like that kind of mentality existed. Yeah, and it's just it's crazy. Well, and it's like interesting too because the whole debate that I hate is like. Well, if women would dress more modest and they wouldn't get raped, it's like that's not how it works. Like we're talking about mentally unstable people that were not raised correctly by their parents and were deficient in a lot of love and nurturing to where they got fucked up and they wanted to do that. It's like how a woman dresses has nothing to do with how you act. If you can't control yourself because someone's showing their shoulder, then you should probably see a doctor and get some help. And <laughs> like, and it's interesting you say that because of this whole like this whole like kind of like a culture of rape where. People are saying, oh, well, if that girl didn't wear that kind of shirt, she wouldn't have got raped. That is just, that's a terrible mindset to have. Yeah. And this Victim same, shaming. yep. And this same mindset existed, has existed for all of human history up and it, it still exists today, obviously, with that. Yeah. So this whole culture of, you know, a man not being able to control himself and a man blaming, blaming the victim, blaming a woman for something. I think that that totally ties into the Salem witch trials. Oh, for sure. Where men just blamed women for for nothing. You know? Oh, yeah. Like a woman starts to get an education. Let's say something that was really common in England was women would practice like herbal medicine. And people would see that, oh, she has books in her house and she's a single woman. That was a huge sign of being a witch. Uh, she has books on herbs and she goes out into the woods and picks herbs. And, you know, like these are smart women who are trying to advance medicine and they're getting accused of witchcraft because a guy sees them and it does, it's not always men. Yeah. I'll point out like sometimes it was women who were jealous of other women. Sometimes it was women who, uh, had a grudge against another woman, but they see these women and they're gaining, they're gaining education. And back in the 1600s, they say, oh, well, you know, that was a terrible thing. If a woman had education and a woman had an opinion, she was of the devil. Yeah. And she had to be put to death. So. Which is a horrible thing. Like, it's just ridiculous. I mean, to think that that was what, like 200, 300 years ago? I mean, up, I mean until, went, the, up until the 50s, it was bad for a woman to go out and have an education and a job. Well, yeah. And I mean, so this, stuff, this shit has still gone on up until just 50 years ago. But I mean, we're not going to put someone to death for having a job or a woman having a job or going to college. Well, I mean, it's crazy to think about, like, the whole entire world has, like, dealt with this issue to different extents. Like, I mean, there's Eastern countries that are, like, handling this, you know, still like we did 200 years ago, where they haven't really progressed that far as, like, far as women women's rights go. But, I mean, it's good to see that we've made some progress, but, man, like, every week we see something and it's just like, dude, like, it's still not fixed, you know? Like, at what point, <laughs> like, do we just treat each other like normal people, you know? And I'm going to have an unpopular opinion on this. Yeah, that's right. But <laughs> I probably shouldn't say it, but what has been the common theme in 16th century Europe and America and the current Middle East and Africa that has repressed women ever since this? Let's hear it. Religion. Yep. No, you're dead ass <laughs> serious, though. Because, like, I don't, I don't know, man. It's the only route. Like, the only other way you can look at it is, like, societal, you know, decisions. But that still stems from a religion. Even then, like, with society... Like it's it's hard for a, a society to kind of like it all it all comes back down to that it all comes down to you know religion yep like you got to think about it like 16th century America the American colonies the Puritans that's where most of this was perpetrated I mean that was literally all they focused on 100 percent throughout the day was religion and you know survival oh for sure 
Well, like on top of that, like you look at religions today and like I've had conversations with religious people where they're like, oh yeah, but our religion's done such a good job. Like we're actually the best when it comes to women's rights. And it's like inside, I'm like, okay, I'm glad you think that, but you got to really take a look from the outside. I'm like, well, the what fact can your women do? Because if they can't do anything, if they're trapped in the family setting, they're not free. Well, the fact that they even have to debate that means they're a shitty religion. Yep. <laughs> like, Straight up. <laughs> the fact that that's even up for like, who cares the difference between men and women? Like, there, there obviously is a difference, but why are you trying to hold them back in a certain regard rather than men? I just, I don't understand it. Straight up. So. It's an interesting dynamic. And it's sad because there's still such repression and there's still such, I mean, if you look at some places of parts of Africa, South America, Middle East, they still put women to death for doing just normal men things. Yep. Well, it's like I was watching uh, 90 Day Fiance, which is like a new guilty pleasure of mine. Have you watched that show? Oh, boy. Yeah. yeah. I, just, I saw that one with the guy with the big neck. Yeah, big head. The one that had no neck. Yeah. <laughs> I should say. Lack thereof. Yeah. So there's a episode where, um, one of the, I mean, it's like basically marriage abroad kind of things, the whole entire show, right? It's just 90 Day Fiance. They get engaged. They try to like make it last before they get married. Usually it doesn't. But there's one scenario where a woman from America was marrying a man from some Middle Eastern country, she goes there, doesn't tell him that she's going to get coffee, goes out and gets coffee, comes back, and he basically divorces her on the spot. He's like, you can't do that in our culture. You have to tell me where you're going at all times. And I was like, God damn, bro. Like, that would suck ass. You can't go anywhere without telling your husband. Yeah, I mean, there's still countries where women can't drive cars. Yep. So, it it doesn't surprise me, which is which is sad, but... It's it's terrible, but we've come a long way in for the past sure. 300 years. And, like, I'm glad we brought this up because we're about to get into the gender context for background in a second, but, like, this all ties in. So hopefully listeners aren't like, what the fuck, we're just going on a... No, gender has a huge, <laughs> huge role in this entire witch trials because Definitely. it was, what, 90, 99% women that were killed. Yep. I don't think any man was accused of witchcraft. I might be wrong. I'll do some research on that, but... All the famous ones and the majority of them were women. Yep. We got a lot of stuff with this, so it's going to be crazy as we get into it. So with that, I'm just going to go over a couple more things, and then we'll have Hunter hop in, and we'll get done with this context portion of the show. So uh, with that, we have some recorded executions in New England. Uh, The earliest recorded witchcraft execution was that of Elsie Young in 1647, which was in Hartford, Connecticut. Um, And then, Hunter, if you want to keep going. Yeah, so New England had been settled by religious dissenters seeking to build a Bible-based society. These were the Puritans, like I was talking about a little bit earlier. Uh, In 1629, a royal charter of Massachusetts Bay Colony was vacated. The colony's last leaders under the old charter resumed their posts as governor and deputy governor, but lacked constitutional authority to rule because of the old charter had been vacated. So the new charter for... The enlarged province of Massachusetts Bay was given final approval in England on October 6, 1961. Uh, Increase Mather had been working on obtaining the charter for four years, which William Phipps often joining him in London and helping him gain entry into Whitehall. Increase, what does increase mean? So I'm not sure, but I do know that's like a title that he has. It's like a governor type thing? I believe so. Okay, Increase Mather had published a book on witchcraft in 1684 and his son Cotton Mather, and Cotton Mather's a, a very significant name mm-hmm. um, uh, during this time. Uh, he published one in 1689. Increase Mather brought out a London edition of his son's book in 1690 and claimed to have picked all the men 
to be included in the new government. News of Mather's charter and the appointment of Pips as the new governor had reached Boston by late January, and a copy of the new charter reached Boston February 8, 1692. Pips arrived in Boston on May 14th and was sworn in as the governor two days later, along with Lieutenant Governor William Stoughton. One of the first orders of business for the new governor and council on May 27, 1692, was the formal non- nomination of county justices of the peace, sheriffs, and the commission of a special court of Oyer and Terminer to handle the large numbers of people who were thronging in the jails. So I just want to hop in and kind of add into what you were reading there. Um, it's interesting because increase uh, Mother or matter, I don't really know exactly how you say his name, is like one of the biggest pastors in this whole uh, story. There's three pastors in Salem. Um, Increase Mother is probably the most well-known, but the one thing that I enjoyed from this context here when it comes to political um, issues is we still have this like New England reign with, you know, America becoming a new country, but obviously New England still has some roots there. Um, And with that, who did they appoint as all their like governors and their officials? They're all men. So we already got that gender issue going on right here. And on top of that, uh, they have a huge fetish with witchcraft. There's like three books that are published within the span of three years and everyone is like freaking out about them and everyone's loving it. It's like the Twilight series for the 1600s and everyone's going crazy about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, with that, do you want to keep going or? Yeah, so uh, let's see, hold on. Give me, me, the... give me one second. I was kind of lost on one of these pages. Okay, you're good. Do you want me to read the local context? Yeah, you can. Or... Okay. Um, local context. Salem Village, uh, which is present-day Danvers, Massachusetts, was known for its uh, fractious population who had many internal disputes and four disputes between the village and the Salem town, uh, which is present-day Salem. Arguments about property lines, grazing rights, and church privileges were rife, and neighbors considered the population as quarrelsome. In 1672, the villagers had voted to hire a minister of their own apart from Salem town. The first two ministers, James Bailey, who was there from 1673 to 79, and George Burroughs, who was there from 1680 to 83, stayed only a few years each, departing after the congregation failed to pay their full rate. Burroughs was subsequently arrested at the height of the witchcraft hysteria and was hanged as a witch in August 1692. Despite the minister's rights being upheld by the general court and the parish being admonished, admonished, each of the two ministers still chose to leave. The third minister, Diodat Lawson, who served from 1684 to 88, stayed for a short time, leaving after the church in Salem refused to ordain him, and therefore not over issues with the congregation. The parish disagreed about Salem's village's choice of Samuel Paris as its first ordained minister. On June 18, 1689, the villagers agreed to hire Paris for uh, 66 pounds annually. Or euros, my bad. One third part is money, and the other two thirds parts is in provisions and use of the uh, parsonage. Through the prior minister's fates and the level of contention in Salem Village were valid reasons for caution in accepting the position. Reverend Paris increased the village's dis- uh, divisions by delaying his acceptance. He did not seem to be, or sorry, he did not seem to settle his new parishioners' disputes by deliberately seeking out inquisitive behavior. In his congregation and making church members in good standing suffer public penance for small infractions, he contributes significantly to the tension within the village. Its bickering increased unabated. Historian Marion Starkey suggested that 
in this atmosphere, serious conflict may have been inevitable. So, I mean, that's a whole ton of shit just right there, you know? Yeah, that's a, that's a lot of... Uh, so it sounded like there was a lot of contention and this was kind of going to be like a boiling boiling point. Oh, yeah. Ever since the beginning. Well, it's like the fact that they only... I don't know how long pastors usually serve for, but I feel like three years is not long. When that's your full-time job, that's like me or you moving jobs every three years. Yeah. Like, and it's the same job. It's just you're not secure in it, you know? I think, like, with talking about pastors and everybody in the local government, like, we always pride ourselves on saying, like, oh, in America we have a separation of church and state. Like, honestly, though, in the first couple years of American history, that was not the case. Nope. Like, literally, the government was the church. The church was the government. That's that's really significant because that's really how the witch trials came about. Oh, straight up. Like, oh, well, we have contention with this lady or we have contention with this guy. Well, let's go ahead and accuse his wife of witchcraft, saying that, the oh, he's mean or I don't like him, so he's of the devil. Yep. Or he worships the devil. So having that that kind of power is really scary because you are the judge, jury, and executioner as the as the um the pastor of the town. Straight up. Well, on top of that, like that was already a huge issue as a, as of itself, you know, but on top of that, um, they were talking about how quarrelsome this village was. I mean, all I'm imagining is a bunch of big egos in the same room. Like, you know, when you go to work or if you've worked with people that have huge egos and they clash all the time, or if you've ever been in an environment where people just don't get along, you have that on top of this religious, like zealousness that everyone's got where everyone's got to be super religious and you got devils out there and you got pastors telling you, that you're a witch. So you got that. You got the gender issues. You got big egos. You have people that are quarreling and just arguing over, you know, grazing lines. Like, your cow is eating my grass. Get it out of my lawn. Like, they're fighting over dumb stuff, you know? And another thing with that, with just, with Puritanism, it was like an extremely, it was an extreme form of Christianity. Mm -hmm. And Puritans pride themselves. Like, they literally left England because they knew, they thought the Church of England was being not pure enough. Yep. So they prided themselves on being like the most holy so these are some really zealous people oh yeah extremely religious zealot bigot people (laughs) straight up (laughs) like the best kind (laughs) they are literally the bigot of all bigotry dude imagine living in this village bro just imagine like one day and you have to socialize with them as many people there as possible it's like oh you walked 501 steps on sunday that's one over your allotted amount (laughs) which burn her burn him (laughs) <laughs> no, but that's what that's really the basis of this. And it sounds ridiculous when we talk about it now, but like they were held to the letter of the law completely. Dude, and on top of that, like with the lack of technology, I mean we've referenced this so many times in this show, and it just attributes to the fact why all the stuff that was shitty that happened three hundred plus years ago is because of lack of technology and information. Like what this is is isolationism. And they're so isolated that they literally can't compare to anything else. They think that's normal. Mm-hmm. And it's far from that, you know? Exactly. Oof. But anyway, let's keep going. So um, I did finish the local. Yep. Okay. So, yeah. so prior to the constitutional turmoil of the 1680s, the Massachusetts government had been dominated by conservative Puritan secular leaders, while Puritans and the Church of England both shared a common influence in Calvinism. Puritans had appro- opposed many of the traditions of the Church of England, including the use of Book of Common Prayer and the use of clergy vestments during services. The use of sign of the cross at baptism and kneeling to receive communion, all of which they believed constituted popery. King Charles I was hostile to this viewpoint, 
and Anglican church officials tried to repress these dissenting views during the 1620s and 1630s. Some Puritans and other religious minorities had sought, to ref- had sought refuge in the Netherlands, but ultimately made a major migration to colonial North America to establish their own society. So and I, I kind of already touched on that, how they left England because they were disagreeing with the Church of England and not saying, like, they were, excuse me, they were saying that um, we don't agree with this, so we're going to go just start our own branch. Yep. Um, so these immigrants who were mostly constituted of families established several of the earliest colonies in New England, of which the Massachusetts Bay Colony was the largest and most economically important. They intended to build a society based off their religious beliefs. Colonial leaders were elected by the freemen of the colony, those individuals who had their, had their religious experiences formally examined and had been admitted to one of the colony's Puritan congregations. The colonial leadership were prominent members of their congregations and regularly consulted with the local ministers on issues facing the colony. So there you go. You literally have the ministers of the colony, who are already strong members of the congregation, constantly talking to the, the ministers, those yep. people. Um, so you have the rich and wealthy and the ministers. They're kind of in, figuratively all in bed together. Yep. It's and a that's bad just, system. It's a terrible system because they all have these ulterior motives. Well, yeah, and there's just so much corruption with that alone because now you just have this secluded group that has all the power. Yep. Like, that is the worst thing you could possibly do. Yep. So um, with that, we're going to get into the final nail in the coffin as far as, like, the main points of this go, which is the gender issues here. So an overwhelming majority of people accused and convicted of witchcraft were women, and that was about 78%. Overall, the Puritan belief in the prevailing New England culture was that women were inherently sinful and more susceptible to damnation than men were. Throughout their daily lives, Puritans, especially Puritan women, actively attempted to thwart attempts by the devil to overtake them and their souls. Indeed, Puritans held the belief that men and women were equal in the eyes of God, but not in the eyes of the devil. Women's souls were seen as unprotected in their weak and vulnerable bodies. Several factors may explain why women were more likely to admit guilt of witchcraft than men. Historian Elizabeth Rees asserts that some likely believed they had truly given in to the devil, and others might have believed that they had done so temporarily. However, because those who confessed were reintegrated into society, some women, might have, uh, some women might have confessed in order to spare their own lives. Quarrels with neighbors often incited witchcraft allegations. One example of this is Abigail Faulkner, who was accused in 1692. Faulkner admitted she was angry at what folk said, and the devil may have temporarily overtaken her, causing harm to her neighbors. Women who did not conform to the norms of Puritan society were more likely to be the target of an accusation, especially those who were unmarried or did not have children and that goes back to lack of science and um emotional understanding if you get mad at somebody and obviously you're going to be mad if someone you know um let's just say for example what would be a big 16th century 1690s like quarrel i don't know chopping a tree down and it falls and it was on your property or something like that just for an example. We still have that issue today, too. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, you're going to be mad because that's firewood yeah. that your family can use for the entire winter. Yep. So when you go over to their house and you get pissed off at them and you're mad, obviously that's a legitimate concern of yours. Yep. But the neighbor's like, oh, you're of the devil now because you're yelling at me. Straight up. So it's literally just a lack of science. 
and it's very backwards. Oh, straight totally up. backwards. Blaming the devil for any type of negative emotion you have. That is something that still to this date people believe. Like, oh, I yep. have a negative thought. It's the devil. It's the devil. Yep. No, it's not the devil. It's your human emotion. Yeah. Well, it's straight up, yeah, just a lack of science because they don't understand, you know, how to appropriately conversate with people. I mean, well, we teach social skills to kids now in school. Half the time that doesn't even work, but we didn't even teach social skills like 30 years ago in schools. I'm like, these people literally don't know how to like talk with the people in an appropriate manner. And on top of that, like the justice system, which is kind of just an extension of society being evolved at this point, was non-existent. You had no mediators. You had no like court rulings. I mean, other than the trit, uh, witch trials, which was uh, just killing people, you know, but they didn't have like any, you know, meetings with lawyers where they like actually, you know, sued people for infractions. They literally took it out with their own accord and dealt with it themselves. Yeah, it was a very, it was the start of the court system, but it definitely was not evolved to what we have today definitely with, re- with representation. Um, and so now we're going to get a little bit into what kind of emphasized these. So we're going to talk a little bit about Cotton Mayer. Mather, who was the minister we were talking about a little bit earlier, he was a prolific publisher in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. He published pamphlets, including uh, some that expressed his belief in witchcraft. He wrote a book, Memorabilia Providences Relating to Witchcraft and Possessions. Uh, Mather described his oracle, oh, sorry, oracular observations and how stupendous witchcraft had affected the children of Boston. Um, the children of Boston under John Goodwin. Mather illustrates how the Goodwin's eldest child had been tempted by the devil and had stolen linen from the washerwoman Goody Clover. Clover, of Irish Catholic descent, was characterized as a disagreeable old woman and described her husband as a witch. This may have been why she was accused of casting spells on the Goodwin children. After the event, four out of the six Goodwin children began to have strange fits, or what some people referred to as the disease of astonishment. The manifestations attributed to the disease quickly became an association with witchcraft. Symptoms included neck and back pains, tongues being drawn from their throats, and loud random outcries. Other symptoms included having no control over their bodies, such as becoming limber, flapping their arms like a bird, or trying to harm, harm themselves. These symptoms would fuel the craze in 1692. So going back to that, I think like the whole Goody Glover, um, how like she's Irish. Yeah. So she's Catholic. So yep. already right there, it's like, <laughs> we got to do something about this yep. bitch. <laughs> Straight up. <laughs> like, we got some issues. Yeah, we got some issues with you, Goody Glover. <laughs> um, so, yeah, because she's Irish, which English, Irish di- have not always had the greatest history. Nope. <laughs> um, and uh, Catholics and Church of England, obviously, that's not going to be so well either, especially Puritans and Catholics. Oh, yeah. That's like, yeah. They literally left them for yeah. <laughs> different reasons. Yeah. Um, so the fact that these children of the Goodwins were having these like episodes, you know, it's probably some type of illness they had. Straight Schizophrenia, up. Yep. Uh, seizures, and these are normal things. Yep. And they could have had those. Well, of course, they're going to point the finger at Goody Glover. Well, she's an angry old woman. She's a witch. And they're not going to necessarily say, oh, it's because she's Irish or, oh, it's because she's Catholic. But, you know, deep down inside, that is the reason why they wanted to kill her. Oh, straight up. Well, and on top of that, like, all these symptoms they're describing is literally just a lack of science. That's all this entire episode is about. It's just a lack of science because all these are medical diagnoses, all of them, and they're all being attributed to spiritual factors. That's what religion does. Religion is a lack of science, and that's how you explain things. Like, 
if you don't have science to explain it, you have to give it up to a higher power. That's just how it works. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. It still happens today. So, I mean, with that, like, it's no brainer that this is going on. But, I mean, that she's Catholic, like you're saying, is just a whole other issue here at this level, you know? So, mm-hmm. um, with that, though, we're going to hop into the timeline. So, we're going to um, briefly go over the initial events, and then we're going to read some letters that were actually retrieved from Salem um, from this time period. And we're going to read through those. And then immediately after is when we're going to hop into the actual trial. So we're just going to go over the initial events. Um, we're just going to go a couple paragraphs at a time, and we're going to hop through this and talk as we go. But I'll start with the first two. So in Salem Village in February 1692, Betty Paris, which was, uh, or who was nine, and her cousin Abigail Williams, who was 11, the daughter and the niece, respectively, of Reverend Samuel Paris began to have fits described as beyond the power of epileptic fits or natural disease to the effect by John Hale, the minister of the nearby town of Beverly. The girls screamed, threw things about the room, uttered strange sounds, crawled under furniture, and contorted themselves into peculiar positions. According to the eyewitness account of Reverend Duddett Lawson, a former minister in Salem Village, the girls complained of being pinched and pricked with pins. A doctor historically assumed to be William Griggs could find no physical evidence of any ailment. Other young women in the village began to exhibit similar behavior, behaviors, and when Lawson preached as a guest in the Salem Village Meeting House, he was interrupted several times by the outbursts of the afflicted. Can you imagine that, bro? You're the pastor of this town, freshly anointed. You pop into this little church, start giving your sermon, and right as you start, people are just yelling crazy shit. Like, like what what's is the, this? What's the, uh... <laughs> Hold on. What is it called? Like when people are like, shit, fuck down. Oh, uh, Tourette syndrome. Tourette's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's probably what they had. Oh, God. There's a bunch of Tourette syndrome people. <laughs> like you're a minister. You've spent all week like writing this amazing sermon. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then you go to the you go to the church and all of a sudden there's these people like, no, fuck, 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 fuck. <laughs> you're like, all right, we got to do something about this. <laughs> oh, my God, dude. I'm dying over here. I can like I can picture it so vividly, dude. And the only reason I can picture that vividly is because like being raised Mormon, I've seen that. Like I've seen it firsthand, bro. Like I'm not gonna like point fingers and say what it was, but you know there's gonna be some weird people that go to church, and you know that one of the times you go and you're seeing there, someone's just gonna have an outburst, and it's like, what the hell is going on? But Tourette's it would scare those people probably because right now we know what Tourette's is a little, but like back then. Like, the, those people were probably terrified. Like, Dude, yeah. <laughs> the devil is trying to, like, say something in church or something. And you know what's also kind of creepy is, like, depending on what the actual diagnosis was, like, you know, it could have been something that they ate that, like, fucked them up or just, you know, mental illness, you know, altogether. But, like, it was slowly progressing. So, like, in this church, there's probably one to two people that had these fits. And then the next day you show up or the next week on service, you show up and there's four. Next week after that, eight. Next week after that, 16. You know, how many months down the road before everyone's just screaming weird shit when you're going to go give your sermon, you know? Yeah, exactly. I don't know. Shit's wild, but. Um, so then we'll continue on. Hold on, hold on. Yeah, you're good. So the first three people accused and arrested for allegedly affecting Betty Paris, Abigail Williams, and Ann Putnam, oh, and Elizabeth Hubbard, were Sarah Good, Sarah Osborne, and... To who is that? To Tatuba. Tatuba. Tatuba was the first. So some historians believe that the accusation by Ann Putnam Jr. suggested a family feud may have been a major cause 
of the witch trials. At the time, a vicious family rivalry was underway between the Putnam and Porter families, one which deeply polarized, polarized the people of Salem. Citizens would often have heated debates, which escalated into full-fledged fighting based solely on their opinion of the feud. <laughs> Good was a disputed woman accused of witchcraft because of her reputation. At her trial, she was accused of rejecting Puritan ideals of self-control and discipline when she chose to torment and scorn children instead of leading them towards the path of salvation. Sarah Osborne rarely attended church meetings. She was accused of witchcraft because the Puritans believed that Osborne had her own selfish interests in mind following her remarriage to an indentured servant. The citizens of the town disapproved of her trying to control her son's inheritance from her previous marriage. So, okay, I'm just going to say That's about that Sarah Osborne thing. Like, that is yeah. really messed up that to accuse someone of witchcraft just because they stopped going to church. Yeah. Like, oh, she stopped going to church. Like, maybe she was offended by something and she said, oh, I need a break. Or, and she could have been because she remarried that indentured servant. Yeah. So, for the fact that the church doesn't approve of that, the church is now getting involved in her own private affairs. Yeah, straight up. Which is extremely messed up. Well, what I'm thinking about right now is, uh, you know, kind of trailing back to what you're talking about with Puritans and how, like, zealous they are compared to England because, you know, they thought they weren't pure enough, right? Mm -hmm. So from what I'm gathering from this scenario is that the Puritans are perfectionists, and they've established where the bar is. You have to be here to be holy and religious. And if anyone does not meet that bar, they're immediately a witch. Oh, you didn't show up to church? Well, you're not one of us. You're not a Puritan. You're now a witch. Oh, you didn't pray three times today? You're a witch. You're not holding up to the standard that we've all set for ourselves. It just sounds like there's like this inner ring of like super religious people that are literally setting the standard for everyone. And the second someone doesn't meet that, they're going to call them a witch, you know? For sure. It's just putting people out, you know? Yeah. And so, so the third one, Tatuba, she was an enslaved South American Indian woman from the West Indies, likely became a target because of her ethnic dif differences with most of the other villagers. She was accused of attracting girls like Abigail and... Accused of attracting girls like Abigail Williams and Betty Paris with stories of enchantment from Malleus Maleficarum. And I just want to pause for a minute because, okay, so Malleus Maleficarum, I have a very personal experience with that that okay. I'll share. Do you want me to do it now or later? No, yeah, go for end? it. Yeah. Okay, so Malleus Maleficarum, I had no idea what the hell this thing was, but when I was in high school, I found a copy of this book at the library. Okay. Because, and okay, the reason why I picked it up is because of how it looked. It was this leather-bound book, and it was a reproduction done in, like, the 1800s, and we had it at my, at my high school library. Okay. In, like, the rare book section. So I'm like, this looks pretty cool. I'm going to rent it. Yeah. So I brought it home, and I started reading through it, and it was weird. Like a lot of it was just like like fourteenth fourteen hundreds language. Yeah. So you're not really gonna understand it. So I put it back. And honestly, the reason why I rented this book is because it looked a little it looked a little sketchy. Yeah. And I was like, okay, this is kind of cool. Well, one one weekend, my friends were were over, and it was in October, and we were hanging out and telling scary stories and stuff because that's what interests us. And I brought the book out. And this thing is literally just a tale about witches. I think the definition of Malleus Maleficarum, I looked it up, uh, it translates to the witch hammer. Okay. And it was written in the 1400s, 1490s, I think, in Europe. And it was a translation into English. So it's just a lot of it is kind of weirdly worded and everything. But we read a few things out of it and we're like, all right, all right. 
we put it in the top shelf of my closet. Yeah. And we're just hanging out because it kind of freaked us out a little bit. And I kid you not, I swear, we're sitting there at the table and we put it was at the top shelf of my book of the book closet. Yeah. And we just hear this massive slam against the door. What? All right. And I was like, what the hell? And it had been like five minutes since we put the book away. Okay. And what had happened, I opened up the closet door. This thing had gone off the shelf, slammed as hard as it could into the back of the door, and dropped to the ground. Damn, all right. Dude. Some witches. I returned the book the next day. Yeah, as you should. <laughs> but I, I'm saying that because that's one of like a couple paranormal experiences I've had in my life. Yeah. And so... I know I talk a lot of crap on like the whole Salem witch trials and stuff, but I don't know, man. I there could be a paranormal element to this. Oh, I'm sure there is. I'm sure there is. Because just seeing that and having that personal experience, and I can even have a couple of my friends come on the show and talk about it as well because they were there. Yeah. And if they're listening, they know that what happened that night was sketchy. <laughs> but dude, the book it must have flown off the shelf and slammed into the door. Yeah. Because when I opened the door, it was sitting at the bottom of the bottom of the closet. Dude, it's like a whole different version of a Ouija board. That yeah. shit's pretty creepy. So, so with that book, though, is it going over spells or like how to banish witches? Like, what is it completely about? Um, It's a couple different things. So basically, it was written as it was written by Heinrich Kramer as a way to kind of understand what witches were, basically. So essentially, I mean, I don't want to like get this to be super creepy, but this really is basically a devil worshiping book or to an extent educating people on devils and demons. Yes, yes, yes. I wouldn't say worshiping the devil. I would say kind of understanding like this became this became like the blueprint for the for the idea of witches of what we have today. Yeah. Like literally one of the pictures is six women standing in a circle in a meadow dancing with two goats. So, I mean, and obviously that's going to have some sort of demonic, uh, like, feeling to it and stuff. But yeah. a lot of these things from the Malleus Maleficarum, like, it talks about burning witches. It talks about how to spot them. It talks about, like, like, <laughs> like a goat is literally humping a woman. Yeah. And that's, that's, like, the devil. But So you want to know something interesting that I learned in my anthropology class? Um, it ties in, it's a little bit like off and this is going to be an explicit warning. So, um, I am going to go into something that's going to be more on the sexual assault rape aspect when it comes to this, what we're talking about. But in my anthropology class, we talked about the devil and like how different religions interpret him. And in most cases they have a goat or a human with a goat head and he has two penises. Um, in our anthropology class, we were like going into why he has two. And the reason is, is because one obviously goes in, you know, the vagina for normal intercourse and the other one's used to go up the ass. And so the whole idea here is that the devil is like sucking out your soul through double penetration. And I know that's super far-fetched, but it's a really weird aspect with that, with anthropology. And it's like pretty creepy to think about. Yeah. What's up? <laughs> it's just funny. Yeah. <laughs> that's some kinky stuff. Yeah, dude. So, um, so have you ever <laughs> seen the movie called The Witch? Uh yeah, I've made in 2015. Yes. Uh-huh. That movie is like really it's dark. It is. And it's cool and I love it cuz I love like the whole I'm really interested in this topic of the of witches and stuff during this time period. Um but 
you bring up the goat, and that's a huge part of it. What is his, what's his name? Like Black Black Pete or whatever the goat's name. Do you remember the goat's name? Um, I can't remember actually. I'm not I don't sure know, but it it has huge ties to religious contexts and stuff, and about how there's just such a paranoia of the devil Straight in up. early Puritan, and like honestly, they're kind of obsessed with that as well, which is what's scary. Because you're saying like there's different there's different Christian sects of religion that love talking about the dark side of their religion, like like Catholicism with exorcisms and stuff like that. Um, the Puritans believed that the devil was to blame for every type of bad thing that happened. Yeah, and that's up. like, oh, I just stubbed my toe. Well, that must have been the devil that put this chair here. You know, like literally, that was a daily topic they would talk about. Right, is the devil, the devil, the devil, and. So it's almost like they worshiped him more than they did God at that point, you know, mm-hmm. for sure. But I just, I really thought that which the witch film was really good. That one made in 2015. Yeah. I kind of want to watch, rewatch it again. Cause I, I watched it when it came out a few years ago, but, um, I just remember it being pretty creepy and interesting. It was, yeah. And it, like, I don't know. It's been maybe five years since I've watched that, but it was a solid film. Like I definitely want to go back as well with that. Um, where, Oh, black Phillip, black Phillip. It was the goat. It was black Phillip. Let's take a look. That's Black Phillip. That looks like Black Phillip to me. (laughs) So, yeah, they basically blamed the goat for a lot of stuff. Yeah, as you do, because, you know, devils and demons. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so uh, continuing on, um, starting with each of these women, right? Is that where we ended? Yes. Okay, we'll just cut out this in-between part. Okay, each of these women was a kind of outcast and exhibited many of the character traits typical of the usual suspects for witchcraft accusations. They were left to defend themselves, brought before the local magistrates magistrates, on the complaint of witchcraft. They were interrogated for several days, starting on March 1st, 1692, and then sent to jail. In March, others were accused of witchcraft. Um, They got a list of names there, but I'm going to skip through that. Uh, Martha Corey had expressed skepticism about the credibility of the girl's accusations and thus drawn attention. The charges against her and Rebecca Nurse deeply troubled the community because Martha Corey was a full covenanted member of the church in Salem Village, as was Rebecca Nurse in the church in Salem Town. If such upstanding people could be witches, the townspeople thought, then anybody could be a witch, and church membership was no protection from accusation. Dorothy Good, the daughter of Sarah Good, was only four years old, but was not exempted from questioning by the magistrates. Her answers were construed as a confession that implicated her mother. In Ipswich, uh, Rachel Clinton was arrested for witchcraft at the end of March on independent charges unrelated to the afflictions of the girls in Salem Village. Dude, that's crazy, bro. Like, I don't know. The thing that gets to me is like, I think this is all kind of because of the pastor's fault, right? Because they were talking about how the last pastor of this village before this all went down um, would publicly like out people that were in good standing with the church. He would give them like light accusations and be like, you need to repent. But they were like his most faithful members. And then I think this is just an extension of that because he did that to them. They're now being outed as witches by the younger girls in the congregation and now this is setting the whole village in turmoil and everyone's freaking out. They're like, oh, damn, well, now everyone can be a witch because these are our best members, the yep. most faithful. Yep, the most faithful, and now they're being arrested. Yeah. Um, so f- with further accusations, Sarah Cloyce 
and Elizabeth Proctor were were both arrested in April. They were brought before Judge Hawthorne and Jonathan Corwin at a meeting in Salem. The men were both local magistrates and also members of the governor's council. Present for the examination were Deputy Governor Thomas Danforth and Assistant Samuel Seawall and Samuel Appleton, James Russell and Isaac Addington. During the proceedings, objections by Elizabeth's husband, John Proctor, resulted in his arrest that day. Okay, so this is like the crucible. Yep. John Proctor yep. in the Crucible. Yeah. I remember reading that in high school. Me too. It was a good read. It was a good read. It was a good read for October. And um I can't really remember the book that well, but um I just remember John Proctor and Elizabeth. So mm-hmm. within a week, Giles Corey. Um hold on. He was the husband. Let's see. Where was it? Within a week, Giles Corey, Martha's husband and covenanted church member in Salem, Abigail Hobbs, Bridget Bishop, Mary Warren. And Deliverance Hobbs, <laughs> Deliverance, can you imagine being named that? <laughs> Dude, that'd be a badass name. <laughs> were arrested and examined. Abigail Hobbs, Mary Warren, and Deliverance Hobbs all confessed and began naming additional people as accomplices. More arrests were follow, followed. Sarah Wilds, William Hobbs, Nehemiah Abbott Jr., Mary Eastie, Edward Bishop Jr., and his wife, Sarah Bishop, and Mary English. So I want to talk a little bit about forced confessions. Yeah. Because even today, that's a huge issue where when you interrogate someone for more than a couple hours and you don't give them food, you don't give them water, you don't give them any type of breaks, they're very, very, very likely to agree to a forced confession. Yep. Happens all the time. All the time. And even today, like I said, it happens all the time. So back in the 1600s, if if you have somebody interrogating someone and you're like, hey, if you just give me three names, we'll let you off the hook or yep. we'll lessen your sentence or give me six names of people you were found dancing in the woods with and um, we, we won't kill you. you right. know? It's that kind of stuff that happened. And that makes people want to confess because they're under the false pretense that they're going to be okay if they confess to these things. Yeah, straight which up. Which in the end, it doesn't help. Nope. Well, I mean, just like, what was it? A couple episodes ago, I brought up the whole fact with the um, college study they did within that mansion where they made the guy believe he committed murder, and within two days, he firmly believed it. Yeah. It's like, you can literally get anyone to agree to whatever you want. You just have to deprive them. So yep, you can. It's fucked, but mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just how it works. You it, know? Is. it is. As long as you deprive someone of their, of their needs, they're going to be more keen to admit to things. Yep. Got to break them it's down. It's a huge problem. It's a huge problem with kids and crimes. Too. Actually, I'm kind of curious. I want you to speak on this. I know this is a little bit of a sidetrack, but because you went through boot camp in the military, I want you to like talk on that a little bit because they really do break you down enough so they can build you up to believe in their ideals, right? Like the second they bring you into boot camp, they start tearing you down and then oh, they start yeah. building you up, right? I mean, how do you feel about that? Yeah, absolutely. That's the entire, that's literally the entire goal of basic training. It, do, it doesn't teach you how to shoot a gun, it's not about how to how to well i went through navy boot camp it's not about how to save a sinking ship it's literally the main goal of boot camp is to forge a new character okay that can be molded around a set of ideas because if you think about it like you have to take kids from all over the country there's wealthy kids that grew up you know being only childs that are going to boot camp there's kids from the dirt poor streets of major cities in the US that are going you have such like a melting pot, races, cultures, religions that go to boot camp that they, and 
one thing that stuck out to me there when I was at boot camp was one one of the drill instructors said, because we asked them, we're like, hey, why are you like talking crazy like this to us? Like yeah. swearing every other word and like just being a total asshole. And he says, I talk to you like this so that the dumbest of, all, of you all can understand what I'm saying. Oh my God. That's what he says. He says, the reason we talk to you like this at boot camp is so the dumbest of you all can understand what we want you to do. Dude, that's so fucked. Yeah, but that's what it is, really. And boot camp, if anybody's been through boot camp, the first few weeks are frustrating as hell because if one person makes a mistake, you all pay for it. Right. All of you. And I consider myself to be a very, um, like, a decent and decently intelligent person. So when one person screws up and says something or does something out of line, it's just it's so frustrating because your group of 150 people now yeah. are just totally getting punished for the actions of one person. Right. That's not fair. And but over time though, you realize that the people that struggle the most are now you're now working as a cohesive unit. Which it's all psychological. Yeah. It's it's rarely physical. And they say that a lot with Navy SEALs. Navy SEAL training, sure, it's, it's very physical, but the hardest part is the psychological issues you're going to have. Right. So with that, how long do you think it takes for everyone in the boot camp scenario to conform? Is it like a week or two, or does it take all the way to the end? No, no, no. I mean, it's, it's a, constant, a constant thing. I'm in the reserves now, and I know that like, my reserve unit is not very military-oriented because we've been out of the military for so long. Yeah. But that's the reason why military... Um, branches still do drills and being on active duty you still have drills and all this kind of like all this um, teaching opportunity and stuff is because if you go away from it you're obviously going to turn back into kind of a, the person you were outside of military outside of military life yeah um, but I would say it's constant but I didn't notice a difference with my um, with my boot camp group until about week four okay so about week four after getting punished so much. And we would still make mistakes up until graduating boot camp. Navy boot camp is eight to nine weeks. Okay. Armies, I believe, is nine to ten. And obviously for special forces, I mean, it's going to be months. Yeah, straight up. Yeah, so. Okay. Well, that's like a good insight to have, though, because I think that speaks to our point with, you know, depriving people. Because it's just interesting the psychological toll it can have, you know, when you feel like you're completely alone or if people aren't, you know, conforming. So. Um, where did we stop with that? <laughs> I think we're about to get into the letters, right? Hold on, let's see. Um, so we'll just continue on a couple more of the proceedings. Warrants were issued for 36 more people during this time, and examinations continued to take place in Salem. And the examinations were done by ministers as well as physicians. And I know with the witch trials in England... A lot of the physicians, like, a birthmark could be the mark of a witch. Yeah. It was literally the stupidest things. Like, oh, you have a mole on your upper left cheek that wasn't there a week ago. Well, it was there a week ago. You just you just didn't notice it. Or, yeah. like, oh, let's strip this lady. Let's strip this lady naked. She claims to be a virgin, but she, you know, like, for example, doesn't have a hymen. Mm. That's the kind of stuff. Like, Which, they would do those oh. kind of examinations... And they would say, like, okay, well, you must have slept with the devil because now you don't have this. When some right. people, like, it either breaks when they're young or it breaks after they've had sex. And right. to be in a Puritan society, you don't want to be labeled as somebody that, you know, 
has had sex before marriage. Nope, that was a huge issue. Huge you literally issue. got outcasted if you did that. Whereas you could have been a younger girl and had that break, and now you're being accused of witchcraft because you claim to be a virgin, but they're saying, oh, well, the devil impregnated you when you were young. Straight up. Well, okay, this is kind of interesting, but like um, with our relig- religion in particular, I always had people like mention that, like, oh, well, you can't lie about having, you know, pre marriage sex because we can always do like a hymen check and we'll know. And it's like, bro, one, that's super sketchy that you have to say that. And two, that's not how the hymen it's like, works. It's like they want to, like, do it. Yeah, straight know? up. Well, it's like, two, like, that's not, like, literally with the hymen, like you were saying, it can break when they're kids. It can break at different reasons. It can be different sizes. It cannot break at all. It could break way later after even having sex. It's like, that's not even a guaranteed thing. It's like, but they, they thought it would be. Oh, yeah. And if that, if they couldn't get proof with that, they would find some other crazy way, like the birthmark or... Yep. Uh, you have a bone that looks a little wonky out of place, you yep. know? It's just, they would, literally, you could find any excuse in the book. You just had to, to be perfect. someone. Like, well, I think that just speaks, you know, the whole Puritan thing. You just had to be perfect. That's it. You don't meet that bar, you're gone. That was the goal. But it's, it's literally impossible to breach what, what a human's definition of perfect is. Oh, yeah, definitely. Because everybody has a different analogy of perfect. Yep. Um, so... Also included with those 36 people who were convicted and investigated were Elizabeth Colson, Elizabeth Hart, Thomas Farrer, and others. With the court of Oyer and Terminer convened at the end of May, the total number of people in custody were 62. Cotton Mather wrote to one of his judges, John Richards, a member of his congregation on May 31, 1962, expressing his support of the prosecutions, but cautioning him. Do not lay more stress on pure spectral evidence than it will bear. It is very certain that the devils have sometimes represented the shapes of persons not only innocent but also very virtuous, though I believe that the just God then ordinarily provides a way for the speedy vindication of the persons thus abused. Which is interesting that they mention it like that. They're like, yeah, so the devil can obviously interpret and take over someone's body to whatever extent he wishes, but you know, by the almighty God, he's going to save us from this grace, but the saving grace is literally just killing the person that's inflicted. It's like, Dude, there is no, there's no safety in that. There is. You're saying God is saving people, but you're literally killing them. It's like, this has been an issue for who knows how long with religion. It's like, this is what God wants. This is for the best. It's like, no, it's not. You're doing the wrong thing. One of the most dangerous things that someone can ever say is God wants this, is pretending to know the mind of God. If you hear somebody saying that they know the mind of God, that is a major red flag. Yep. And I'm going to say it Yep. because people don't know what god wants exactly well and on top of that because you assume the people down below that are listening to that person are immediately without question immediately going to believe 100 percent what that person says no matter what go jump off a bridge and people be like well yeah well if they said that i wouldn't do it because that's stupid but it's like yeah but they could say something close and you would do it it's like that's not how it works you know gotta be careful do your research absolutely um yeah so we're gonna hop into the letters right yeah let's go for it which one uh do you want me to read Okay, I'll hop in first since you've been reading a bit. Um, let me do the John Cotton August 5th one, and then if you want to do okay. yeah, John do Foster or whichever one. Okay, uh, John Cotton August 5th, 1692. Uh, Reverend Sir, our good God is working of miracles. Five witches were lately executed, impudently demanding of a God of God a miraculous vindication of their innocency. Immediately upon this, our God miraculously sent in five Andover witches who made a most ample, surprising, amazing confession of all their villainies and declared the five newly executed to have been of their company. 
discovering many more, but all agreeing in Burroughs being their ringleader, who I suppose this day receives his trial at Salem. Whether a vast concourse of people is gone, my father this morning among the rest, since those there have been come, uh, wait, sorry, since those, uh, since those there have come in other confessors, yea, they come in daily. About this prodigious matter, my soul has been refreshed with some little short of miraculous answers of prayer, which are not to be written, but they, can, uh, but they comfort me with the prospect of a hopeful issue. The whole town yesterday turned the lecture into a fast, kept in our meeting house. God gave a good return, but in the morning we were entertained with the horrible tidings of the late earthquake at Jamaica on the 7th of June last, when on a fair day the sea suddenly swelled, and the earth shook and broke in many places. And in a minute's time, the rich town of Port Royal, the tyrus of the whole English America, but a very Sodom for wickedness, was immediately swallowed up. And the sea came rolling over the town. No less than 1,700 souls of that one town are missing. Besides, other incredible devastations uh, all over the island, uh, where, houses, where houses are demolished, mountains overturned, rocks rent, and all manner of destruction inflicted. The nonconformist minister there escaped wonderfully with his life. Some of our poor New England people are lost in the ruins, and others have their bones broke. Forty vessels were sunk, namely all those cables did not break, but no England ones. Behold, an accident speaking to all our English America. I live in pains, and I want your prayers. Bestow them, dear son, on your... That's a weird-ass letter. Yeah, like literally it just talks about like, hey, here's our success with catching witches. And then it says, oh, by the way, there was an earthquake in Jamaica and it killed all these people <laughs> yeah. that were sinners. Straight up. And they're like, what a blessing. Thank you, God. It's so annoying when religious people do this stuff. Yeah, straight up. Like, I remember, this is terrible to say, but I remember when Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans. Oh, yeah. A lot of people around me were saying, oh, the reason why there's a hurricane destroying New Orleans is because it's such a wicked city. I was like, I heard that, that too. is just such bullshit. And if that shit was true, then it would be happening here because you're saying that shit. Yep. <laughs> like, you know how judgmental you sound? I hate it when, when religious people say that kind of shit. Yeah. It's so annoying. Like, oh, there was an earthquake because, oh, this crime occurred there 20 years. Like, oh, there was a hurricane because this city is immoral. And they say that all these cities are like Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> like, they reference that one event in the Bible, and they've been doing that shit ever since, the and Bible. You, okay, you know what, like, always gets me about the Sodom and Gomorrah, like, explanation is it's like, okay, what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, they were just fucking each other in the asses. That's it? That's it. You're yeah. gonna tell me that's the only thing you know that's, about that? That's how the word sodomy came about. Yeah. It's just like, come on, like, alright, I get that you guys are anti-gay. To each their own. It's fucked that you think that. But it's like, that's the only thing that they're well, sitting okay. with? okay, and another thing about that is, even up until... Like with 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 our church, oral sex was yep. Oral sex was banned until 1980s. Yep. So even in the 1600s, like oral sex is something that would also be considered sodomy. To this day, oral sex is sodomy. Right. Well, it's like I remember with the Mormon Church, they had that whole thing where it's like you can't have oral sex, and they had a couple other things like no, like handies or you know <laughs> other things. It's just like yeah. th there was the one way. You do it missionary or you go home. <laughs> but it's like okay. hence the word missionary because it's wholesome. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so I, I don't even know if I want to ask this, bro, but like 300 years from now, the Mormon church is probably going to let gays get married, right? And hold the priesthood. 
uh, they did it with the blacks, so probably. Yeah, like, <laughs> they're going to change their mind. But they got to wait till all the old people die off so they don't, like, think something's up, you know? <laughs> yeah, they got to wait till our generation is the old people. Yeah. Anyway, side 10. <laughs> now that we lost a good chunk of our Mormon listeners. Sorry about that, but, you know, we only speak truth on this podcast. True. <laughs> Just kidding. Okay, we'll go back to those wonky letters. So, uh, the next one is also to John Cotton. This was dated October 20th, 1692. It says, My kindest and dearest uncle, there are 14 worthy ministers that have newly set their hands onto a book now in the press containing cases of con- conscience about witchcrafts. I did, in my conscience, think that this is humorous of this people's now run. Such a discourse going along would not only enable our witch advocates very learnedly to cavil and nibble at the late proceedings against the witches, considered in parcels, while things that lay in bulk, with their whole dependencies were not exposed, but also everlasting stifle any further proceedings of justice, and more than so, become a public and open contest with the judges, who would find themselves brought unto the bar before the rashest mobile. For such cases as for one more, I did with all the modesty I could use, decline setting my hand unto the book, assigning this reason that I had already in a book in press which would sufficiently declare my opinion, and such a book, too, as already had passed the censure of hand which wrote was then before us. With what sinful and raging asperity I have since treated, I rather forgot than relate, although I challenged the fiercest of my accusers to find the thousandth part of one wrong step taken by me in all these matters, except it were my use of all humble and sober endeavors to prevent such a bloody quarrel between Moses and Aaron, as would be bitterness in the latter end. No other faults have been laid before me, at last I have been driven to say I will be more vile, and quoting Matthew ten nine, I have concluded, so shall I not want a father. So, okay, got to take a break there for a minute. Yeah. <laughs> That's another thing that really pisses me off, is like, you're literally quoting the Bible about your current, what you're doing currently. Right. So, I don't know, that's just annoying, because you don't even know if the Bible stories actually happened or not. Yeah, well, it's like, I just, I don't know. My personal gripe, and I apologize, I know we've, like, bashed religion to an extent. If you're religious, like, to each their own, but, like, don't put yourself in a box where you're only listening to people that are religious. Like, please, like, listen to people that don't agree with you, because that's the whole key to, like, gaining knowledge. But on top of that, like, a lot of religions do this, where they use scripture, and then they'll just pull verses to deal with whatever they're dealing with at the time. Like, oh, this verse is speaking to me. This verse is exactly what I'm going through. This verse is what's happening or this verse justifies what I'm doing. It's like everyone's just using scripture to dictate and justify their action. Yeah. You know? And in some cases you, that story could go with what you're dealing with, but it just happens way too much. Yeah. It's like us taking society. a Dr. Seuss book and be like, Oh yeah, you know, go dog, go. Like that's about me getting a car and wanting to go fast. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's like, okay, it's, <laughs> that's convenient, but yeah. not how it works. Yeah. Um, so this is, we'll continue on with this letter. It says, since the trial of these unworthy treats, the persons that have used them have endeavored such expressions of sweetness towards me that may, that may make me satisfaction. But for the great slander with which they have now filled the country against me, that I run against my own father, all the ministers in the country, merely because I run into them when they are like madmen running against one another. They can make no reparation, however my God will. My friends have now happily gained a point which has been long wished for, for even to become unconsidered. I confess things may become 
every day more and more so circumstance as if any opportunities of serving my neighbors were after a sort expiring alas i have made no better a use for them while i had them i see oh my gosh <laughs> <laughs> do, do we want to continue do we want to read this letter because i don't think anything in here is about witches no nah, we can cut it out i'll go to the next one okay i was gonna say like what is this saying about witches i don't know but they're probably just like oh history this is from salem yeah okay and... what does this one say the next one john foster yeah okay can... yeah i'll hop in real quick okay okay so august 17 1692 sir i would know whether i still retain my opinion about the horrible witchcrafts among us and i acknowledge that i do I still do think that there is no further evidence against a person but only this, that a specter in their shape does afflict a neighbor. That evidence is not enough to convict the word missing of witchcraft. I know that word's bitch. I know that. Let me read it with that in there, okay? That, <laughs> it's gotta be. It's gotta be. There's nothing else. That evidence is not enough to convict the bitch of witchcraft. <laughs> There's no other word. That fits too perfect. So we'll anyway. just we'll we'll say it's that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. Uh that the devils have a natural power which makes them capable of exhibiting what shape they please. I suppose nobody doubts. And I have no absolute promise of God that they shall not exhibit mine. It is the opinion generally of all Protestant writers that the devil may thus abuse the innocent. Yea, it's the confession. Alexa. Stop. <laughs> okay, cut. <laughs> uh where was I? Nevertheless. Or it is the okay. It is the opinion generally of all Protestant writers that the devil may thus abuse the innocent. Yea, it's the confession of some popish ones. And our honorable judges are so eminent for their justice, wisdom, and goodness that whatever their own particular sense may be, yet they will not proceed capitally against any. Upon a principle contested with great odds on the other side in the learned and godly world. Nevertheless, a very great use is to be made of the spectral impressions upon the sufferers. They justly introduce and determine an inquiry into the circumstances of the person accused, and they strengthen other presumptions. Presumptions, When so much is made of those things, I believe the use for which the great God intends them is made. And accordingly, you see that the excellent judges have had such an encouraging presence of God with them. As that, uh, as that scarce any, if at all any, have been tried before them, against whom God has not strangely sent in other, and more human and most convincing testimonies. If any persons have been condemned, about whom any of the judges are not easy in their minds, that the evidence against them has been satisfactory, it would certainly be for the glory of the whole transaction to give that person a reprieve. It would make all matters easier if at least bail were taken for people accused only by the invisible tormentors of the poor sufferers and not blemished by any further grounds of suspicion against them. So I want to kind of take a stop there because this guy is like writing his own version of the Bible. <laughs> but, I mean, what are your thoughts up to this point with how he's talking? Um, I think that it's a lot of hearsay because literally there's no facts yeah. about like there's presumed facts about what what makes a witch a witch and about specific witchcrafts but like they're putting so they're ma- basically making another part of religion straight in a up sense. yeah like they're coming up with their own ideas and they're canonizing it yep which this guy who knows what kind of mental state this guy is in straight up and he's publishing a book on something that is not true Straight up. At all. He's saying like, oh, well, here's what I've seen. Here's what I've read. Now I'm going to write this thing and call it fact. Right. 
and it's not fact. Nope. It's not. There's literally no evidence for any of this. Right. Well, I mean, it's just interesting because what the background context we've read over, there was a father that wrote a book on witchcraft and his son wrote one and he had his son's book published. It's like, it's just this craze that people are like, oh, we need to start talking about this. We need to start writing it. We're going to publish this and everyone's going to read it and it's going to be great. You know, no one's written a book on this yet. It's like, dude, <laughs> we need to yeah. chill. Or saying like the devil can take on any shape any at any time and he's doing all this stuff. It's like, really? Yeah. It's a bit much. Uh, do you want to finish off this letter? Yeah, what part? Uh, we're going to hop in yeah. with... Sorry, I forgot. No, you're good. The odd effects. Okay, so continuing on with the letter, I can read the second half. It says, The odd effects produced upon the sufferers by the look or touch of the accused are things wherein the devils may as much impose upon some harmless people as the representative of their shapes. My notion, these, this matter, is a suspected and unlawful communion with a familiar spirit is a thing inquired after. The communion on the devil's part may be provided, while for sought I can say the man may be innocent. The devil may impudently impose his communion upon some that care not for his company, but if the communion of the man's part be proved, then the business is done. I am suspicious, lest the devil may at some time or another serve us as a trick by by consistency for a long time in one way of dealing. We may find the devil using one constant curse in 19 several actions, and yet he may be too hard for us at last if we thence make a rule to form an infallible judgment of a 20th. It is our singular happiness that we are blessed with judges who are aware of this danger. (laughs) For my own part, if the Holy Ghost should permit such a terrible calamity to befall myself as that a specter in my shape should so molest my neighbor... It was the devil. It wasn't me. It was the specter of me, not not me that molested the neighbor. Um, I should very patiently submit upon a judgment of transportation, and all reasonable men would count our judges to act as they are like the fathers of the public in such a judgment. What if such a thing should be ordered for those whose guilt is more dubious and uncertain, whose presence thus per- perpetuates miseries of our sufferers? They would cleanse the land of witchcrafts and yet also prevent the shedding of innocent blood. Wherefore, some are so apprehensive of hazard, if our judges want any go good bottom to act upon this, you should that, besides the usual power of governors to relax many judgments of death, our general court can soon provide a law. Sir, you see the incoherency of my thoughts, but I hope I will also some reasonableness in these thoughts, which there is no reasonableness nope, in these. not at all. Our case is extraordinary, and so you and others will pardon the extraordinary liberty I take to address you on this, cons- on this occasion. But after all, I entreat you that whatever you do, you strengthen the hands of our honorable judges and the great work before them. So he's, just, he's basically saying give the judges more power. And he's saying like, oh, well, the judges know all in these situations. Just yeah. let them. They're... they're educated on what witches are the signs of witchcraft and that's dangerous because the majority of these judges are crazy zealot puritans yep exactly because their judges are people that go to church yep there's no separation of church and state here and on top of that this just sounds like a lot of boot looking like oh thank you judges like please keep doing your great work like don't look at me i'm not a witch but keep you know killing other people like you're doing a great job god has ordained you and i ordain you as well like dude this guy's just boot looking yeah he's saying and I think the judges should have more power. Okay, well, you just literally murdered over 30 people Yeah, for that were probably innocent. 
that might've been caught in the wrong place at the wrong time. Like literally this is a huge injustice and they're, they're praising the judges for this straight up corruption at its finest. This is literally like so horrible. Like, (laughs) and we haven't even gotten to the trials yet. No, we haven't. And that's going to, the trials are going to be in part two. Yeah. Um, we kind of just wanted to give a little backstory about the witchcraft in part one and read a couple of these letters. Right. Um, I don't know if you want to go through any others. I'm kind of over the letters to be honest. Yeah, me too. Okay. Um, what do you think? I think we should just, yeah, let's this. end it, because we're at what? Oh, we're at 2,300 yeah, bars? We're, we're yeah, we're good. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Okay, you want to close it out then? Yep. So this is going to be part one. We just kind of wanted to share a little bit about the backstory. I know it was a lot of reading, and we're sorry. We're sorry for bashing religion so much as well. Not really. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, that's like the root of all this evilness right here. Yeah. Um, so that is part one of our Salem Witch Trials. In part two, we're going to talk a little bit about the trials, and witchcraft in more modern pop culture yep so thanks for listening this is season three episode two of the dark things podcast we'll see you next time see ya